Howdy. Rob Lee here with a special message from the fine folks at the Night Owl Gallery. Night Owl Gallery is an intimate artist-run exhibition space and shop featuring emerging Baltimore artists in the heart of the Highland Town Arts District. Here, you will find one-of-a-kind gifts, handcrafted jewelry, and home decor items, along with a few vintage treasures. Located in the rear of 248 South Conklin Street, across from Sally O's, Night Owl Gallery is a unique space that brings together owner Beth Ann Wilson's love of art, community, and culture. Additionally, Night Owl Gallery hosts an array of arts and crafting workshops throughout the year and participates in and hosts community events, many of which are free and open to the public. You're invited to visit in person or online at www.nightowl.gallery. You're invited to join us on Friday, August 5th from 5 to 9 at Night Owl Gallery for the debut of Alive, a show featuring new work by Lookford Baltimore, a.k.a. Gray Dillon. Dillon is a recent graduate of the Baltimore Design School and will be attending Maryland Institute College of Art in the fall. Seamlessly melding street art and fine art, Dillon's body of work is a kaleidoscope of colorful abstractions reflecting on what it means to be alive. The opening reception will take place during the first Friday Highland Town Art Walk and will feature musical performances by Ange the Alien, Basic the Basis, and more. Alive will be on view at Night Owl Gallery through the end of August. Visit www.nightowl.gallery for details. We got a spinoff alert here. Uh, the Truth in This Art Beyond is a spinoff series of The Truth in This Art. Where the original focused on Baltimore, uh, this series extends outside of Charm City to engage in artistically and culturally relevant conversations and sharing rich stories from our favorite cities. And as always, creativity matters here. So I hope you guys enjoy and subscribe. Welcome to The Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today I have the privilege of having a conversation with a city council member for Baltimore's third district. Please welcome Ryan Dorsey. Thanks for having me, Rob. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming through. Glad to I, almost be wanted, I almost wanted to put the Ryan Dorsey on Yo, there. No, I'm all about that. Go ahead. <laughs> My wife calls me the Honorable Boo. <laughs> nice, nice. My girlfriend calls me something very different. <laughs> uh huh. I'll leave that between y'all. She she calls me Wave Daddy. It's on a jersey. It's 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 a thing. It's on an <laughs> Orioles jersey. Uh, I wore it at one of the um one of the movie screenings I did. It was it's great. It's great. <laughs> so I, I want to start off because I gave a very very sparse kind of like copy and paste literally off of a governmental site. Uh, give me the vital stats. Like your background is much more diverse than just city councilman. Like, give me that, that those vital stats. What's your background, and ultimately, what kind of like gave you that that urge and that spark to to run for office and, and be in office in Baltimore? Yeah. So my name is Ryan Dorsey. I'm 40 years old. I live a half a block from my parents in the same neighborhood where I went to grade school. Um, I met my wife at that grade school before we lived down the block where my parents are. We live six blocks away on the same street as my grade school, uh, St. Francis of Assisi. And um, uh, and I am a graduate of the Baltimore School for the Arts, where I studied violin and made a lot of friends uh, that practice a wide range of artistic disciplines. 
I started college as a violin major at the Catholic University of America in DC, studying with Jody Gatwood. And uh, I transferred after two years there to Peabody Conservatory. I kind of wanted to move back to Baltimore. Um, uh, And I'm an alcoholic and I was an active drinking alcoholic then, like, you know, living with a wish for death on a daily basis kind of alcoholic. And, um, and, you know, and and to, to be real about it. Right. And, and, and at that point I was basically like, I'm moving back to Baltimore. If I get into Peabody, all right. If I don't, I'll figure out what to do with my life. Yeah. And, uh, so I moved back to Baltimore and I was fortunate. I got into Peabody and uh, I finished there with a degree in music composition. Um, and continued to be, uh, you know, an active concert goer and a person attending, uh, you know, arts venues uh, for theater, for um, for visual arts, all kinds of things, performance art, uh, film. And because um, and, and, I kind of grew up in the DIY scene here in Baltimore mm-hmm. City and um and and unfortunately, like I said, to be married to somebody else who's from this arts community here, my wife, Erin Fostel, is a visual artist and she's a graduate of MICA. And uh, we just have a, you know, a kind of rich life that's basking in the arts. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, and so people ask me, like, how do you go from that to running for city council? And the answer is always kind of directly. I didn't leave that behind, right? I just like took this turn where really I looked at the folks, the folks in the arts community and was like, you know, a lot, all the people around me seem to understand Baltimore city is broken mm-hmm. and that we have problems that to, for which there are solutions mm-hmm. and we need good leadership. And, um, I was really at a crossroads, not sure what I was going to continue to do, because honestly, making art is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And you see, if you know anybody in the arts world, you know that it is really, really hard to make a living as an artist um, and, and that we fail as a society to recognize artists as laborers who are to be compensated fairly like anybody else who works for their pay. Yeah. And um, and uh me i was really facing that like return on investment kind of challenge and was like i don't think that this is what i want to be doing with myself um because i didn't necessarily feel extremely dedicated and passionate about it in the way that so the people that i go and admire you know uh as artists um the, the way that those people are that they need to do it and that's who we need making art is the people for whom it is life. And for me, it was like, these are also the people that I think we need in leadership positions, but I wouldn't ask any of them to give up what they do in order to change course in their life. I want them to continue making art. I'm not sure what else I could do, but go and take up that mantle. Yeah. On behalf of all the people I know, the people in my community, the, you know, my arts community, my family community, my neighborhood community, um, all that. I kind of got that vibe from you in the in, in watching a, a video that we may talk about a little bit later, probably off, probably off mic. And uh, I, I literally when I, and I was, as I'm watching it, I was like, 
Give him hell, Dorsey. That was literally <laughs> what popped in my head. And um, big shout out to Aaron. Um, also been on this podcast. Um, also, um, yeah, I, I think I, I think of this 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 quote. Um, the 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 site kind of escapes me at the moment, but it's like you don't separate art from life. You know, that's 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 how artists are. You don't separate art from life or what have you. So, you know as I rally for at least what I do as a podcaster to be in that vein of being considered art. And that's always a fight. And it's like almost this way of trying to justify what you do. And you see the output, you see the work that goes into it. And I don't feel right if I haven't done something related to this in the course of a day. because it doesn't feel like work. It feels like, no, this is my creative practice. Um, yeah. So I definitely, I, I I'm picking up what you're putting down there. And, um, I, and I think, people sit in certain pathways or what have you, um, where I think what you were touching on where it's like, eh, well, I don't, I wouldn't want someone to basically like cut a limb off. Cause I, I heard another oh, quote right. about you, you take, you take where you are, you cut a limb off. So I kind of look at what I'm doing and that as well. Like I can have a conversation with someone who might be a politician, someone who might be into real estate or something like that, which ugh, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be talking to them if you're an artist, but eh, let's let's get an idea what they're saying. Let's get an idea what the story is and be able to sacrifice whatever credibility I might have to have that conversation because it may drive something forward. Whereas maybe a visual artist shouldn't be doing that or a musician shouldn't be doing that. Well, yeah. And I think that that's also kind of like that's that practice of listening and understanding is absolutely essential to what uh, we do as elected representatives. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I talk about artists as laborers, but I also talk about laborers as laborers, workers as workers. And that um, it's my job to be representative of, uh, of everybody working or not. Yeah. And, and, and what I really believe is that like, not only uh, do artists have great perspective, but that like, you know, nurses have great perspective and, uh, day laborers have great perspective and people who work, you know, a coffee counter have great perspective. And this, and, and, and that, um, most people are just living a, a life that's, um, this busy yeah. and, and don't necessarily get the opportunity or have a, you know, a pathway to successfully become a person who is, you know, a representative, an elected representative. And, and so, you know, I believe in all of those people's ability to do what I do. Yeah. I don't think I'm necessarily unique. I just, you know, consider myself fortunate to have had this pathway, this opportunity to, to, to get to represent people. Totally. So can you, can you talk about, um, maybe some initiatives that you even try to like push for that you've put out there that have been um, aligned with how you view arts and, and culture here specifically in, in, in Baltimore, obviously, but specifically in how you view like arts and culture. What are some things that you fought for or kind of pushed for in helping the um, arts and culture folks out? Yeah, there's a few things that I've done and there's a few things that I'd like to do. Sure. Um, you know, I created um, an arts grant that I gave out for three years to people in my district called Artists District. Um, and, you know, part of that name to me is a commentary on, I feel like the lack of success of arts and entertainment districts, 
right? Arts and entertainment districts tend to benefit landholders. They tend to benefit business owners, people who already have capital access to become those things or to have become those things before where they already owned property was designated as an arts and entertainment district. They benefit. What we saw actually with um, the creation of the Station North, Ar North Arts and Entertainment District is 10 years on, um, the median education level of people who live in the community went way up because it incentivized a lot of people to live there because it also incentivized businesses to be there. And there's this concentration of livability, being able to walk to a job, walk to, a you know, whatever a thing that you, you want. Um, and it attracted artists, people who have college degrees, people who have graduate degrees, um, but who are still working, say, part time jobs um, at cafes and at theaters and at restaurants and places like that. Um, in order to continue to have an artistic practice. And what we see is that the median education level skyrocketed, but the median income level of the people who live in those communities remained plateaued at what it basically had been before it was designated as an arts and entertainment district. And I think that that's, an, it, that's a really clear indicator that how we are viewing our um, efforts to uh, bolster arts and arts community is not actually translating into everyday benefits for the actual artists, the actual cultural producers. And so I think that the, one of the most important things that we can do uh, for artists is to directly fund them. Um, and so I raised money for several years to give uh, grants out to uh, people in my district through this program called Artist District. Um, and I also you know, try to strip away uh, the myth of meritocracy through thing uh, um, uh, that that is uh, that proliferates too often, and so we actually ended up uh, relying on a lottery system uh, to be able to 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 award grants to people, um, not project based, not merit based, not jury based, nothing like that. Um, and we also added a, a racial equity component to it, so that no matter how many, no matter the racial makeup of the people who were applicants the awards were likely to be going to something that looked like the racial demographics of the city of Baltimore. Um, and, and, and then in this last, uh, with the American Rescue Plan Act, with the money that the city got, um, I, I successfully helped to get a half a million dollars given to uh, Baltimore Office of Promotion and the Arts to make grants directly to artists as part of a um, pandemic recovery fund, uh, individual artists uh, awards. Uh, they ended up making, I think, like 110, 111 grants of $3,500 each to different artists. That's, um, that's great. <laughs> yeah, I would, I mean, and, and they had twice as many applicants as uh, awards that they made. So they could have easily spent a million dollars. Um, but, you know, we were successful in getting a half a million dedicated to that. Um, you know, one of the things I think is really unique about Baltimore is we have a, 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 a uniquely rich history of arts and culture within our city government. hundred years ago, the city of Baltimore, just like it has a Department of Public Works and a Department of Recreation and Parks and Department of Transportation, mm -hmm. hundred years ago, we had a Department of Music. Wow. The Baltimore <laughs> Symphony Orchestra bears the distinction of being the only major orchestra in the country that was originally established as a municipal entity. It was an instrument of our government. Oh, wow. 
and um, and it became you know what it is today over time. Um, and the city also has a long history of having a city band. At some point in city code, there was a provision that said um, that uh, the there there shall be a band and it shall perform in neighborhoods throughout the city all summer long. And even today, the director of Rec and Parks by charter is mandated to provide musical experiences to the people of the city of Baltimore. And we don't do enough to make good on that. And so one of the things that I uh, that I hope to do before the end of this term is to establish a city band um, and something that can be uh, you know unique and of note and can help to uh, create a new legacy for Baltimore um, yeah. As a cultural innovator, um, um, but I think in order to do something like that, we have to bring some things in house. Right now, we outsource a lot of our um, trust in cultural stewardship yep. to the Baltimore Office of Promotion and the Arts, and I don't think that they necessarily do a good job of it. And I think that we'd be better off if we had somebody in house, something like um, like a, a deputy mayor for all for arts and culture. Um, something like, you know, in a lot of other governments, they would call it like a minister of culture or something like that. That, that sounds like a great title, actually, minister of culture. I, mean. I like it. I like it. <laughs> One of the things that, you know, if I have any say so, have you that I would really want, like, you know how you have different cities like. You know, jazz is New Orleans music. Go-Go is D.C.'s music. Uh, club music needs to like on paper, you know, like like something official. Baltimore needs to have club music as our thing because you're seeing it pop up and like it's crossing over. It's like you had a Drake album that was mid, but also it had a lot of club music, Baltimore club music specifically influences in it. And I, f I hear many people kind of aping saying, oh, that's ours. That's Jersey Club or I mean, I literally last year uh, was at a it was at BlurredCon. I was at um, BlurredCon and me and a couple of my buddies, you know, from the area, they were playing like some club music and the guy gets on the DJ that gets on the microphone. And he's like, yeah, in town for some Jersey club. And the actual DJ was like, you mean Baltimore club? And we was like, yes, sir. We were like super loud and just That's loud right. and proud Baltimoreans about it. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's wild growing up in Baltimore because you know, I mean, growing up in general, you don't really understand um, what what you grew up basking in until you go somewhere else and and see that they didn't have it. When I got to college, my my freshman roommate was a guy from a, a little town in Connecticut. He said literally had one traffic light, <laughs> and um, you know, he partied like I did, like drinking and smoking weed and, and was into music and all kinds of stuff. And we could relate on that level. But then like, I was like, yo, we had shows like in basements. Y'all don't have basement shows yeah. like where like, I mean, I started having shows out of my parents' basement when I was like 15, 16 years old. You know, sometimes it'd be five, three, five bands, whatever. Yeah. And sometimes it was uh, the first time we did it. We had like 17 acts play starting in the <laughs> middle of the afternoon, went to like after dark. It was like crazy, crazy. Yeah. And then we had, we had like, you know, all ages clubs that were like literally opened by high school students co-signing a lease on a place with their mom so that <laughs> yeah. we could create our own places for for artistic experiences. And they don't have that in little towns. And it's like, you know, I didn't 
like Baltimore club is like something that, you know, growing up in Baltimore city and you don't necessarily know until maybe you're of a certain age that like that's ours. Yeah. And it, it also echoes this, this thing, the, even the, the kind of like the clubs that, that you were describing, that's, that goes to the, the DIY thing. It's just always that we're going to figure out a way to do it and it's, yeah. it's going to happen. So <laughs> Yeah. And, and but I think um, and I think one of the other things that you were, were echoing and you, some of the work that you've described that you you were a part of, and you were doing that, that kind of serves as a way of like is a response to it. You know, those those resources aren't always out there, aren't always the most equitable representative of what's here. If you got a city that's, you know, 70 percent black and then. I have from the vantage point that I'm in, I interview these folks and they're kind of telling me the same thing that ah, I was rejected this time. Ah, I wasn't on that panel this time. Mm-hmm. It, it, it speaks to something kind of not working in a certain, in, a, in, a, in the right way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that, it, it kind of brings me to this, this next question where I think it's very, very great, very great timing. Um, so government accountability and transparency, why was that um, such an important thing um, for you? And I know that this is more so for the listeners than for me, I think. But <laughs> why is that important for you? And I think, you know, I, I want to get your take on that. Yeah, well, so like I campaign on um, the idea that you know, we can't fix Baltimore's problems with programmatic solutions, right? We can't say, oh, we've got this thing that we're going to spend some money on and it's going to fix things. Like, because that's not how our problems came about as a city. Our problems came about through the implementation of policies. And you can't, you can't unroot a problem that was created by policy with programming. You have to unroot it mm-hmm. with better policy. Um, And I chose to focus on policies that historically have been rooted in racism around housing, around transportation, around job access and working conditions. Um, And I consider those three things to be kind of the foundations of livability, Um, you know, where you live, where you work, how you get between the two. And then there's kind of this like fourth leg to governing and it's about trust. It's about accountability. It's about protections. Um, so I think of that, that fourth leg as uh, being all about like, nobody is obligated to trust in their government. It's the jobs, it's, it's the government's obligation to build that trust um, for people. Yeah. And, and, and so, uh, it, cause, it's, cause it's just too easy to let things um, be taken advantage of. And so, you know, for me, that has meant uh, establishing an independent inspector general's office so that people um, know that at least there's somebody as a watchdog over their tax dollars at work. Um, That has meant uh, improvements to, you know, to ethics laws. Uh, and financial disclosure laws for city employees and elected officials um, to to ensure that everything that they're doing is above board um, and ensures trust. And that also means consumer protections laws and tenant protections laws and working to protect workers as well. Um, and so and and um, you know, victories are big and victories are small and victories are hard to come by sometimes. 
You're saying that to a lifelong Oreo fan, so yes. I- <laughs> <laughs> Yo, I'm sorry, man. I went to a game like two weeks ago and we won. Um, but it was we've against- been playing better. We've been playing better recently, so you know I'm, I'm here for it. And you know, I'll, I'll put it this way: I'll give you this context, and you know, um, and, and it's unrelated to anything, but also it's wins and losses, though. Uh, the the first game, the first baseball game that I ever watched was the Jeffrey Mayer game. So that that'll just give you context. I don't I, I don't even know about I don't even know about sports enough for that to make any sense to me. Oh, that is the game, the playoff game against the Yankees where the kid reached over and grabbed the home run ball and the Orioles lost in the playoffs. That was my first game. Oh, dang. Yeah, that's ugly. That's real ugly. <laughs> that's what I started I, off with. <laughs> um, is that great? I, yeah, I, I don't know much about sports. Um, I know I know enough to know that it's a bad day when you lose to the Tampa Bay Rays. Stop. And I was just happy that when we went a couple weeks ago, we beat them. Yeah. So th- this this is I, I think this is an interesting um, question here. Uh, so differences, especially I think in in in, in your, your where you're at and what you're what you're doing day to day, differences are inevitable. How do you? productively disagree like without being in an impasse how do you like all right all right let the record show (laughs) (laughs) Uh, look i feel like most disagreements don't end in productivity right i I mean it's 2022 most disagreements end in disagreement and um I feel like politics and organizing is all about just having the majority in your favor. And, yeah, yeah. you know, that's kind of the world I work in. Um, and look, the other thing is like, all right. So I, I do want to say like, it's important to, to admit when you're wrong. It's yeah. a, it's imp- and it's equally important to um, be, to to not be afraid of being wrong like you got to have dialogue and sometimes you're going to be wrong and sometimes you're going to change your mind but it's also important to not be afraid of other people being wrong it's not you know it's important to to not back off when you need to say what's uh, what needs to be said i advocate for a lot of things that go uh up against a lot of deeply ingrained conventional thinking. And I'm advocating often for stark shifts in how we have done things for a very, very long time. And, um, And I just have to remember that I don't necessarily represent each and every one of each of my constituents every beliefs. Sure. Yeah. Right. I have to look at what I do as a, as representing the long-term best interests of where I represent and the people I represent, even if they disagree that it is in their long-term best interest or everybody's best, the long-term best interest. Um, so that comes down to things like what I did last term with complete streets to make sure that our neighborhoods and our city is accessible for people who don't own cars and that it's safe for people who are more vulnerable road users that are not, you know, going everywhere they go in their, you know, two ton portable uh, cage. 
and um and and then also you know what i'm working on now is to make communities more accessible through uh dismantling exclusionary zoning uh you know we have these long long-standing uh conventional beliefs about zoning that say like single family detached houses go here and row houses go here and there the tweens shall meet and it's okay to convert row homes into multiple units, even though they are smaller than big detached homes. And it is never okay to convert a big detached home, no matter how large it is into multiple smaller units and create more opportunity for more people to live in those neighborhoods. Right. Um, you know, and, and the, the, the beliefs in the systems that we adhere to at present are in those respects are as deeply ingrained as the belief that, police are somehow going to make us safer. Like, and and that's just not true. There's right. no evidence worth pointing to, to make such a claim. And yet the vast majority of the population believes that we need more police in order to become more safe. Yep. And I have no reason to believe that there's a, an equation that makes sense there. I, I dig it. And I, I think like, I've got to say that to my constituents on a regular basis. I have to tell them, look, I know that you believe this and have believed this for a long time, but I don't. And here's why. And here's what I'm doing to bring about the change. The, the, the end results, I think, that you're looking for. Yeah. And I, I, I find that when we have new sorts of thinking, I had a or what may buck the trend, what may go against the conventional way to, we've already done, we've always done it this way. And it's like, yeah, but how about we change that? And I find that one of the things that have happened in some of these like storied institutions, I, I had a conversation a few weeks ago and um, with, with someone from one of these institutions and they were telling me that, yeah, I'm glad that you circle back because um, I wanted to work with them. I'm glad that you circle back because the person that was previously in this role kind of rejected it because they didn't believe in podcasting as a thing. They, did, they just like weren't with it. And the person I was working with was like, yeah, you know, we have a different vision now. We've brought in some like new people and we kind of see like, no, this is definitely something that should be part of not only our content mix, but our marketing mix, the whole gamut or what have you. And, you know, it was a much it was a fruitful conversation versus the, you know, you're selling yourself hat in hand. And it's like, look, I've reached out and I think expressing a vision sometimes can be sometimes it can feel really lonely and you can feel like, am I am I crazy here? Am I bugging out? And but you just have to stay the course, I suppose. Yeah, um, it, you know, I, I think it's it's cliche to quote Sun Tzu, I think, you know, <laughs> the art of war and all that. But, you know, there's um, there's a couple of quotes that I think of. It's uh, the one is um, the, the greatest victory is uh, one that requires no battle. Mm. Um, and there's another one. I forget exactly how it goes. It's like, um, you know, the uh, a battle is uh, every battle is won before it's begun, something like that. Yeah. And, and, and so when I think about like um, your question, like how to productively disagree, it's like bake the disagreement into your uh, aims in the first place. So yeah. my my philosophy on policy making and like goal pursuit of goals is to shoot the moon every time. Never ever gauge your starting point 
on what you think will be agreeable to, you know, the majority. You yeah. always, you just pull out all the stops and say, this is the absolute best scenario or maybe even more, right? Yeah. Go all, you know, go a step further. And then, and then you have room to back off only as necessary. And, yeah. and, and then it's not really a disagreement. It was just a dialogue to get you to know, to, to where you knew it was going to end up anyway. That's legit. It's uh it's I all about it, organizing, man. It's all about organizing strategy and planning. I think of two things. I think of the Dale Carnegie thing where it's just like, if you know you're going to have a disagreeable situation, you are you almost pre-bake it in there. Like, yeah, I know you probably think I suck. So you're already disarming the person and then you're just going with whatever your ask is. Or to quote the B-Rabbit character from 8 Mile, it's just like, here's everything you're going to diss me on and now I'm going to roast you. It's, it's kind of one of those things. <laughs> I, I thought about that scene in a minute. <laughs> um, so I got, I got two more real questions and those rapid fire ones are coming right after. Um, so uh, people tend to, to comment, you know, about the crime and violence in Baltimore without delving deeper. Can you share, you know, as a, as a Baltimorean, um, a few suggestions of things that folks should be looking at here? I mean, there's so many and people just get, you know, fixed on this is all it is. You know, yeah, I feel like this is a question that can go kind of like either way. Like, it's like you're trying to like get me to say, like, look, not everything is terrible. We got wonderful stuff in our arts community, right? Like, and we do. <laughs> Let's be real, we do, and, yeah. and and it's amazing having neighbors, and it's amazing to. Yeah, I think Baltimore's not unique in this. It's like when you live a place for a long time, and there is some real sense of community. That becomes very personal, uh, deep, you know, deeply meaningful. Just to even know people peripherally and see them change over time, and to know that you, I've lived down the same, you know, the block from the same people for a decade or whatever. Um, you know, that's not unique to Baltimore. There's a lot of wonderful, um, wonderful quality of life to be had. We have amazing parks. Uh, yeah. We have an incredible park system in the city, um, and, but. But like on the other hand, it's like uh, it's not just the crime yeah. that there is to complain about. So if, if if that's what everybody's harping on is the crime, like let's also talk about housing inequity. Let's also talk about dysfunctional transportation opportunity in the city. Yeah. Let's talk about white flight and the GI Bill that took people out of the city, abandoning our tax populate our tax base, while also retaining their political influence to tell us how we should be spending our money. Yep. And and how that's been going on for a half a century, and and that that is really the root cause of our uh, our crime and the violence and the disparities that we face as a city, is that um, we have abandoned the needs of everyday people. We have abandoned the 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 governmental responsibility to provide public services uh, in favor of uh, creating amenities for private use mm. um, and, uh, and, and, for, and for those who are privately advantaged. Um, and, and, and that we have to correct these things because um, the crime is just a symptom. Yeah. These are the underlying things, is the inequities, and the history that's what's underlying it all and that's what we're still not doing enough to correct 
yeah, pe- people don't want to do that that deeper dive. They see it the surface level and it's like this sucks. Yeah, sure it does. But also yeah. there's a lot of things that are baked into it that are within it, and you can just just do one layer, one ask one why. And like one of the things I'm a data analyst by 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 day, and one of the things that I try to abide by is the five whys. It's like we should do this. Why? Well, because why? You're just going to keep asking. And it's like, well, crime sucks. Well, why do we have crime? Well, but why is that happening? Oh, yeah. well, I don't want to go that far. I don't want to do too much work on this. Oh, OK, got it. <laughs> Show your work, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, there. And 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 what we tend to see moved in terms of like um, public policy or public investment are the things that are like often very easy to identify. Like I'm definitely a, you know, a huge proponent of Baltimore City's Affordable Housing Trust Fund and the work of the Affordable Housing uh, Trust Fund Commission and uh, you know public investment in housing um, and ultimately the decommodification of housing. And, um, uh, but I can also say it's really, really easy to say you know, sign here for an affordable housing trust fund to be created mm-hmm. or vote to have money put into the affordable housing trust fund. It's um, it's much more difficult to be like. Also, the zoning code is this thing that came about to utilize race neutral, constitutionally acceptable language to codify all the same intents of redlining when redlining was de- was declared to be unconstitutional and discriminatory. And it's written in this really complex technical language that nobody mm-hmm. really understands, but is nonetheless having a very, very dramatic impact on you know housing opportunity in the city and the housing creation. And let me tell you all about how it works and convince you why our conventional thinking is dead wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are not the things that move along particularly easily. Um, it's the kind, but they're the kind of things that require a deeper dive. I'll tell you the other one that I harp on all the time is we have a, a, a completely undemocratically structured city council in Baltimore. It's our legislative branch is structured like almost no other anywhere in that we elect an at-large city council president to lord over the district members instead of all of the district members choosing their speaker or leadership like it's done in the United States Senate, like it is done in the United States Congress, like it is done in the House of Delegates, the state of Maryland, Maryland Senate. And literally, I think every other uh, county legislature in the state of Maryland and almost any anywhere where the majority decides who their leadership representative is in order for the body to work democratically. We don't do it like that here. And it creates, I think, uh, additional layers of political struggle to achieving solutions. And I think that we should do away with it, but it really takes a level of investigation and a deeper will to understand root problems and to attribute outcomes to root problems. It takes a deeper level of willingness to uh, to engage. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think one of the things that that you touched on and i think that i i see and every now and again if i encounter it 
I, I quickly like, you know, can you stop and say that, like, make it dumber? You know what I mean? And right. yeah, because it's like we'll have these weird nuance, these weird like this is jargon oriented, like they, they use in marketing. Here's these are the terms we're using. No, you got to You got to make that for everyone, you know, like make that something that you don't need to have a degree or a background in this area to, to try to understand it while you're asking someone to endorse it or to uh, uh, buy in on it or have, you're trying to establish goodwill. You've got to know who you're talking to, know your audience. And I find that a lot of times that thing doesn't happen and people are expected and they realize like years later, Oh, you know, you signed that, right? You know, you know, you got that pushed in the law, right? It's like, Oh, huh. All right. So this is the last one I have. And this is kind of a, a sasson, if you will, for um, the rapid fire questions. So, if you could summarize what you do um, as a as a as a councilman, and in, in, in terms of doing one thing well, what would it be? Polarize. I polarize <laughs> people. Uh, <laughs> Senator Cory McRae. Uh, I remember he 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 became a delegate two years before I came onto the city council, and then in my first or second year on the council, he had been out knocking doors in some of the area where his 45th legislative district overlaps my third city council district. And um, and he, we were talking shortly after. He's like, you know, I was not, I was knocking doors in this and that precinct. And he's like, man, I gotta tell you. Ryan Dorsey, people either love him or they hate him. <laughs> and and I tell you, I, I I get a lot of people like on Twitter where they'll be like, um, one of two things they'll be like, um, I I don't agree with you on virtually anything <laughs> at all. But on this one thing, I think you're right on. And on the other <laughs> hand, I get people like, you know, I'm with you, Ryan. You know, I I, I, I I think that you advocate generally for the right things and I'm with you on almost everything. But on this thing, man, you are dead wrong. <laughs> and those are, those are the two most common commentaries I hear on what I do. <laughs> Polarized. Yeah, that's great. That is great. But that's that's also what you got to do uh, in order to win. Um, in organizing, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, rules for radicals is yeah. like you have to you have to completely polarize whatever subject it is because um, I don't believe in the middle of the road solutions. I think they only get us half measures. Legit, I think that's a good place for us to stop there when it comes to the real questions. And now it's time to to to, to kind of piss away all of that goodwill and go into some rapid fire questions. All right. So you want to answer these as quickly as you can. Uh, don't overthink it because we all do it. And it's like, well, you know, I, I, I do like to do the cabbage patch, but that's not really my favorite dance. My favorite dance is the wild. It's like, all right, less. Okay. Here's the first one. Uh, the don't most ask me about club dances, bro. I, I don't have any dance questions. No dance okay. questions. Uh, most recent movie you've watched. Oh, um, Oh man, I'm I'm gonna look it up because I watch a lot of movies. Everybody in Baltimore City should have a membership to Beyond Video. Shout uh, out to Beyond and, Video. <laughs> you no, know, shout out to Beyond Video. Oh, most recent movie I watched was Flee. F L E E. Um, it's a true story of uh, an Afghani refugee who moved as a teenager to Denmark. It's um, presented. Uh, primarily in animation mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and but also has like archival like news clips in it um, 
And uh, it's, you know, about being a refugee moving uh, from from one country to another and also uh, as a gay man, um, you know, kind of coming uh, coming out yeah. to family. It's a really, really incredible uh, movie. Flee, F-L-E-E. It came out last year. I, I can't. I think I'm, I'm aware of that. Yeah, I think it's uh, maybe maybe it was in documentary for uh, maybe Academy Awards or something. Because I feel like it was in one of those conversations. Uh, okay, this 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 one is a great question. If coffee was a drug, what would its street name be? Um, um, uh, I, <laughs> I was having a conversation the other day with someone about Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I was like, "How you feel about Dunkin' Donuts?" And they were like, "I have a real aversion to um, to comparing things to crack, but." <laughs> wow. Um, I, I just call it like uh, life juice. I don't know. Life. That's, okay. That's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I, I probably call it the shakes because I, when I drink too much coffee, it's like, oh, man, I had a little bit of jitters. Oh, oh, no. See, I'm a maintenance drinker. I know. Ex- <laughs> I know exactly where my balance is. Uh, I have to have it. But I also know I had better not have too much. And I've got it. I have a cup in the morning at like six, seven o'clock in the morning. And I have a cup at like two, three in the afternoon. Oh, I'm just drinking straight espresso. And like I'll in the morning, I have the most I've done in the morning, espresso or red eyes, something like that. It's been like like seven. Like you've had seven shots today. I was like, oh, well, here we are. This is what we're doing. Um, All right, let's keep them coming. Rapid fire. Two more, two more. Um, last song that you've played, because I, I know you're a music guy. Yeah. Uh, oh, yesterday I had some people over here for a minute. I played. Um, oh, I played a track off of the Tortoise record. Uh, Millions now living will never die. Uh, it's from like 1996, I think, something like that. And yeah. then I also played um, the Fanfare to also Sprock Zarathustra. Okay, I dig it. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. I played the Herbert von Karajan recording, which is the classic recording that is used in Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Nice. Nice. Yeah, that's very familiar. That's the last, that's the last thing I, I listened to. Um, since, since you've, you you pointed out the behind you, that, that great, I guess that's a map behind you, that great map. Three things that you have to bring on a hike for yourself. Like, what, what are you bringing on a hike? You have to have three things. What are they? Um, coffee. I mean, if, oh, uh, no, I was, okay. No, so like when I think about hike, the first thing I think is backpacking. Um, the water, like, bro, you got to hydrate. Water. Um, do not under, underestimate the value of trekking poles. Trekking poles are amazing. Um, if you're going on any hike of any great distance, you should you should have some trekking poles. Um, and uh, I don't know, man, uh, a hat, some shades, something like that. So okay. be comfortable, man. I wear um, I wear uh, trail runner shoes. Trail that's, runner shoes. That's where it's at. Trail runner shoes, man. I don't mess with boots, and you don't want to have the wrong footwear. Boots are heavy. Trail runners are light, but they give you that traction and that tread. I only wear the Brooks Cascadias. <laughs> that was a nice endorsement, by the way. <laughs> Bro, I mean, I'm just saying. 
<laughs> I hiked I hiked the whole Appalachian Trail in 2012, and if you looked at people's feet, there was one pair of shoes that more people were wearing than anything else. It was the Brooke Cascadias, and I'm on my like seventh or eighth pair of them over the years now. I dig it. So. Yeah. That's that's pretty much it. Um, that's that's all the questions I got for the day. I want to thank you for being on this podcast. And um, two, I want to also uh, invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks where to check you out um, to read really weird things that's on social media, because I've seen really weird things about your social media, weird shots. <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't know. I, you know, I don't, uh, I don't really use Facebook anymore. Um, I don't really do IG, and I haven't updated my uh, my website in like two years. Um, I just on Twitter every day at elect Ryan Dorsey. That's it. Well, there you have it, folks. I want to again thank Ryan Dorsey for coming on to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, yeah, there is a community um, in and around Baltimore. Just gotta look for it. <laughs>